Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with... Scott Tobias. Keith Phelps. Genevieve Kosky. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're looking at two Disney animated features that take the same approach and tell the same story, more or less, even though they were made nearly 20 years apart and originate in extremely different cultures. Genevieve, your parents say that you shouldn't read this next part because it wouldn't be fitting for a girl, but you want to stand up for your independence and read it anyway? I I will, but only to bring honor to my family. (laughs) Disney has a long history with reclaimed fairy tales and female protagonists who stand up for themselves, but the studio takes its favorite tropes to a new level with Moana, the new CGI movie about a chief's daughter who escapes her South Pacific Island to track down a missing demigod and save her people from a slowly spreading curse. In a lot of ways, Moana does what Disney always does. It starts with a local myth, in this case a series of folk tales about the South Pacific demigod Maui, and then it builds that myth into a familiar, accessible, kid-friendly story about a young character coming of age and saving the day. Disney's 1998 movie Mulan, which is largely traditional hand-drawn animation with some early CGI touches, does the same thing with an ancient Chinese folktale about a young woman who disguises herself as a young man and goes to war in her father's place. Both of these movies follow similar story patterns. Both of them are musicals, and both of them are part of Disney's slow, experimental work to diversify its character stable. And they're both trying hard to repair Disney's longtime reputation as a studio that really didn't know what to do with non-white characters or cultures, apart from using them to represent villainy or local color. Just looking at how both films handle non-European cultures is pretty enlightening, and it says a lot about how international storytelling has changed over the last 20 years. But there are a lot of other commonalities here, from comedy animal sidekicks to a teenage search for identity through adventure. And both films have a lot to say about the place of tradition, cultural heritage, and family honor. So we're going to haul out the traditional drums, do a few traditional dances, and see whether Disney's really figured out how to navigate the choppy waters it's been sailing for so long without a map to guide the way. I've heard a great deal about you, Mulan. You took your father's armor. Ran away from home. Impersonated a soldier. Endangered the lives of thousands of men. And destroyed my path. 
soon the world will know the great things you have done. Father. The greatest gift and honor is having you for a daughter. Back in 1994, Disney was riding what felt like an endlessly cresting wave, lifting its reputation and its profits higher and higher. The Lion King's unprecedented $600 million box office take changed the animation business significantly. Suddenly, studios that weren't in animation at all started forming animation divisions, and studios that were in animation began expanding rapidly. Disney itself committed to producing one animated film a year, which involved a lot of rapid expansion. Among other things, one small studio branch, Walt Disney Feature Animation Florida, underwent a huge expansion. What started out in 1989 as a 40-employee offshoot, more or less a Walt Disney World exhibit that let visitors look through glass windows and watch animators live in the field, turned into a 400-employee branch that took on progressively larger roles in Disney's animated features. Walt Disney Feature Animation Florida was largely dedicated to the bigger, brighter, less technically sophisticated Disney projects like the I Just Can't Wait to Be King segment in The Lion King and various Roger Rabbit shorts. But with Disney ramping up its feature animation, the Florida offshoot was given Mulan, its first full-length feature. The directors were two Disney veterans who'd never directed features before. Barry Cook, who'd worked on special effects for Tron, Captain EO, and The Little Mermaid, and Tony Bancroft, a character animator who'd specialized in comedy characters like Frank, the frill-necked lizard in Rescuers Down Under, and the gargoyles in Hunchback of Notre Dame. Bancroft talked a lot in interviews at the time about how Mulan had been in development at Disney for years, at least since 1994 and The Lion King's success. The version he first saw was an animated short about an impoverished Indian girl who ran away from home to a better life as the wife of a rich British officer. Even the early versions of Mulan's scripts were less about the title character as a hero and more about her relationship with Captain Yi Shang. But Bancroft had daughters, and he expressly wanted to create a hero they could relate to, one that wasn't passive and didn't need to be rescued. And that fit well with Disney's mandate at the time, coming out of Beauty and the Beast, where the studio was highly praised for the first time because it had created a female character with agency, intelligence, and interests outside romance. But even given those high aspirations, Mulan is still a fairly strange movie, one that tries to be grim and serious in places, but still relies heavily on the character comedy and slapstick that the Florida branch of Disney was used to producing. It's expressly a children's movie about war, in which the protagonist kills hundreds of people on screen, and a man looks out over the broken corpses of his father's regiment lying in the snow. It's also a movie that has Harvey Firestein voicing a character who gets naked in a big group skinny dipping sequence, and has Eddie Murphy more or less doing a feature-length audition for his long-running voiceover role of Donkey and Shrek. So we're going to look at some of the places Mulan came from, and the parts that had to come together to make it happen, and then we're going to see whether it can bring honor to us all. I don't need anyone causing trouble in my camp. Sorry. Uh, I mean, uh, sorry you had to see that. But you know how it is when you get those uh, manly urges. And you just gotta kill something. Mm. Fix things. Uh, cook outdoors. What's your name? Uh, I, uh, I, uh... Your commanding officer just asked you a question. Uh, I've got a name. <laughs> and it's a boy's name, too. Ling, how about Ling? His name is Ling. I didn't ask for his name. I asked for yours. Child, Achoo! Achoo. Achoo? Gazanet. I killed myself. Mushu. Mushu? No. Then what is it? Ping. Ping was my best friend growing up. It's Ping. Ping. 
Because Ping did steal my group. Yes, my name is Ping. Let me see your conscription notice. Fa Zhu. V Fa Zhu? I didn't know Fa Zhu had a son. Um, he doesn't talk about me much. So guys, what do you make of Mulan as a movie, as an experience, as a, a girl worth fighting for? <laughs> I think we're, we're all looking at each other like, eh. <laughs> I was worried I was going to come in here and this would be a beloved movie. It's all right. It's okay. It's kind of like I feel about it now the way I felt about it when I saw it whoa, 18 years ago at this point. It's, like, mm-hmm. eh, it's all right. I, I, do, I do really like the character a lot. I, I, think, I think Mulan is a really uh, winning character. Yeah, what about you guys? <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember having a lot more affection for it than I did on, on this watch. I don't know if it had just kind of been amplified in my mind a little bit as a stronger film than it was, maybe because it was so different from the Disney movies that were coming out at that time. And that was a period of my life when I saw every Disney movie religiously when it came out. But yeah, this time around, I, I was struck by how little Mulan actually says mm-hmm. <laughs> in it and, and how even though she is the the central character and she is the one doing a heroic and notable thing, she is just kind of being moved around the the movie a bit. We can talk more about that, but I, I want to see if anyone has a strongly different opinion. No, I, I'm with you. I, I think the film ends up being just dominated by Eddie Murphy, which is a big problem because basically I, there are times where I, I feel like the film is transporting me to a different time and place. Mm-hmm. And then when <laughs> Eddie Murphy does his thing, all I can think about is Eddie Murphy in a sound booth <laughs> recording the voice for this movie. It's so distracting. And I, and I felt that with Aladdin, which is what, you know, I think we can blame Aladdin for him in this movie. Very I, think similar it, characters. Is, I think it works better in Aladdin, though. I think, you know, this is it's a character that's removed from the rules of time and space. So kind of, you know, the, the pop culture references make a certain amount of sense. I just think Robin Williams does it better. I, I, it's weird because Murphy's donkey is one of the few things I like about Shrek. I find that character very endearing. For like but, the first 12 movies and then after yeah, that. No. <laughs> All right, when I say Shrek, I mean the first Shrek, which I think is okay, and the second Shrek, which is terrible and made me never want to see a Shrek movie again. So that's when I say Shrek, that's what I mean. But I found he's an annoyance in this. I, I find it just really completely takes you out of the movie. Yeah, and the context is important because Shrek is, you know, a very self-referential movie. Uh, that's made for people who are pop culture savvy, and, and this is a, and Mulan is a, a movie that is supposed to be transporting us to this very uh, a specific you know, ha- time and place, specific time and place, half a world away. And um, you know, whenever Eddie Murphy comes on and does his thing, it just it's gone. I mean, whatever spell the film is trying to cast is just dissipates. And I mean, part of that is the familiarity of the voice. Part of that is the characterization. But part of it's just a function of what he does in the story, which is very strange. I mean, in theory, this is a movie about a young woman who is willing to sacrifice her life to save her family, to save her father, who she loves. But the movie spends so much less time on that relationship and even on what she does in war than it spends on the fact that like this little dragon pushes her into all of this like for really selfish reasons and the movie spends a lot of time on on his selfish reasons and then kind of blows past the apology in the end where he doesn't really acknowledge that he kind of got a lot of people killed (laughs) i mean like a lot of people killed and granted a lot of the most of the people who were killed because specifically because of him were bad guys but still kind of what was set off by him like actively trying to push her into war is everybody she knew almost dying and her murdering an army like an entire army well it's not murder if it's war Uh, (laughs) it's no murder (laughs) oh it's no murder if someone somebody loved you (laughs) it's no fooling um 
this played for me this time kind of like it played for me the first time, which is like I've I've always been an animation buff. It is so hard to get animation that feels like it's for grownups in America. And Disney kept doing this thing where it would walk right up to the edge of we're going to have like a serious mood or serious moment. We're going to animate something beautiful. And then we're immediately going to walk back and do like 10 minutes of goofy stuff with a cute animal mugging for the camera. And there's some really emotional stuff in this movie and even some really beautiful animation. And it's just so overwhelmed by like goofy slapstick and and mouthy Eddie Murphy character. You have that happen right at the beginning, too, with her father going to the shrine, I guess, in their what backyard or something. And the, the dog is chasing food all around him. Yeah. It's a funny bit, but it's like, this is what's your identity here? Like, the solemnity. <laughs> yeah, the solemnity of that is 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 broken. I think, there, and I think it's just a conservatism on Disney's part. It's it's kind of fascinating to watch Mulan in relationship to Moana. I guess we'll get to that this later, but just to see how conservative the company is, but also how is it, it has noticeably evolved over a long period of time. It's just that evolution takes a really really long time, and you know Mulan takes us to a place that Disney has never taken us before. But there are elements that that are there that make us feel comfortable. I mean, even the name Mushu. <laughs> It <laughs> is uh, does not distance us uh, from the popular and delicious uh, Chinese pancake dish. It is my favorite. There's you know, a lot I, of I like, like weird like comedy around food in this in this movie, and yeah. that that comedy around food consistently doesn't feel like something the characters would actually feel. It feels like Disney kind of elbowing you in the ribs and saying, "Hey, hey, Chinese food." Yeah, you, you, here's what you know about Chinese culture: the food, and well, we'll, the start, wall. With, we'll start with that. The, <laughs> the wall. wall. Yeah. Oh my god! Well, uh, that's, fireworks. That's fireworks. something that I was yeah. kind of. <laughs> I was looking for throughout is like one of the things I was so impressed with about Moana is the way it integrates all of these ideas from South Pacific culture that mm-hmm. were really heavily researched and very carefully team vetted here. I mean, is it just because Eddie Murphy keeps pulling us back to the here and now that this just kind of feels like a checklist of, OK, Chinese food, dumplings, ancestor worship, the wall, fireworks, uh, chopsticks and face paint and, and dragons. And in geishas, which is not oh, a Lord. Chinese thing, yeah. and yeah, I, was, I was a little thrown by that. I mean, maybe courtesans, sort of like the you know, they use conky, they use the word concubines. They do yeah. use the word concubines, but I don't know. Just a lot of the visual imagery here feels more Japanese than Chinese. Yeah. I mean, this is the company that gave us Epcot. You know, like cultural tourism is you know part of the brand uh, to a, to a certain extent. And, and it's like when you're a kid, you don't see that because I loved Epcot. I yeah. really felt like I was traveling to other lands when I was a kid. Yeah. And then when I went as a grown-up recently, it's like, oh, it's just a bunch of gift shops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and pretty tacky ones at that. But, I mean, do you feel like – is this film trying to be respectful of Chinese culture or is it just being a checklist? I think it's trying in, in, in a way that was uh, probably unusual in its time. But perhaps compared to Moana, it's a much less – uh, I don't want to say respectful. I don't think there's any disrespect intended, but there's not a whole lot of necessarily cultural sensitivity. Yeah, either. like as a baby step, I, I think it's admirable in that regard, in that regard. But it doesn't go far enough, I think, into that culture by today's standards. I, I just I keep thinking of the joke in the episode of The Simpsons where, where uh, in the future, Lisa's marrying the British guy, and Homer meets his parents. It's like, you know what I like about your country? Octopusy, and she's like, that could have gone much worse. You know? <laughs> that's, that's kind of how I feel about. This. Though I, I can tell you, I'm I am a visitor from the past. I was an adult when I saw this film in 1998, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I can tell you that I found it to be tacky at yeah. the time. So uh, I don't know if time has. Uh, 
even in the context of the time, I think that you could probably poke some pretty significant holes in it. Well, what the film's kind of trying to do is take some very familiar Disney formula. I mean, it, it, it's a reclaimed myth. It's about a young girl who sings the I Want song and goes out into the world to find herself. And then she has a big adventure with her talking animal companion and she finds romance. I mean, all of these are, are Disney formula that we've seen over and over again in their specifically in their fairy tale movies. But at the same time, we're getting in all of these new agendas about agency and being culturally forward and respecting the place that the story came from. How do you think Mulan like integrates all of those ideas? It's very girl powery, isn't it? It's, it's very like sort of nineties Spice Girls feminism. It's like, yeah, girls can do stuff too. As long as you act like a boy. <laughs> yeah, that too. Well, yeah, but at the same time, and I'm really curious what you guys make of this. There's there's this really strong, yeah, boys are icky. Mm. I mean, yeah. naked boys are really super gross. But naked clothes boys, it sounds like Harvey Firestein. <laughs> <laughs> I, but but I, clothes I, boys are always like rooting around in their noses with their knuckles and like beating on each other because boys are dumb and girls are smart. Like that, that, this is not just the feel of the movie. This is stated over and over. I felt yeah. like I was watching a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> this is how this is how things go. I do remember those days at the dissolve where you guys would just punch each other in the head all yeah. day. No, well, we just don't do it around you. When the guys are together, then there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, snot flying around. Apparently, see, I, I I guess I read the grossness of the men to be more about camaraderie between soldiers than the the broad ickiness of all. Dude is, is picking crap out of his toes with chopsticks. Yeah, but I mean, there's, there's, somehow, a, there's right? only other dudes around. Yeah, <laughs> but she, on the other hand, she definitely has a libido. I mean, when she first sees Shang, there's sort of kind of an eyebrows raised moment. That that was unusual and in, in, at the time too. Well, he's, I mean, he's very broad chested. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, he's. I mean, I, yeah, it, it's thirst in a Disney movie. Like <laughs> he he whips off his shirt and she's just like, oh, humana, humana, which is it is. Kind of hilarious. You get that a couple years later with with uh, Jane and Tarzan as well. Oh yeah, that's true. Well, there's a lot of broad chestedness and uh, like <laughs> a lot of semi nudity going on in that film in general. I mean, didn't we kind of get that with Prince Eric and Little Mermaid like years mm. before? I seem to remember him having oh, yeah. a very broad bare chest at some point. And, um, and King Triton, <laughs> the broadest <laughs> chest in the Disney canon, and and the nakedest. I mean, he does have a very naked chest, but I don't think that there's any uh, any lusting going on there. No, I I mean, I think that part of that, the way that scene plays out is just kind of to remind us that no matter what we're seeing visually, she's still a girl and she's having a different experience from anybody else in that space, uh, which I think is interesting. But I, I also think it's interesting that we have this movie that's about this kind of like chaste it's a love that cannot speak its name because she's she's pretending to be a dude, but at the same time, like she sees a bunch of guys naked and she's like, I never want to see another naked man again. <laughs> what Harvey Firestein? <laughs> Chinese I mean, Harvey Firestein. Tell me that that shot of her looking up directly into his naked groin, uh, like with the camera from behind, is not a weird thing to see in a Disney movie. It's it weird. is. It yeah. is. Yeah. It was weird to hear you describe it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's not, I didn't really interrogate my five-year-old about what she thought about that scene after we watched this together. <laughs> yeah, I, well, there are a lot of things in this movie that I, I find myself wondering. What, like, what, is a, what does a five-year-old make of the field of corpses? What does a five-year-old make of the old man who has a war wound from some like past war? Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. There were a lot of things. I, the five-year-old probably is in a better position than most to parse the Batman joke. 
Uh, but maybe not. I don't I, know. I, I, I make, I don't, except for the Batman thing, I make a, a goes overhead gesture here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me defend for just a moment the romantic angle of the film, though, because uh, we go back on that. I don't have a problem with well, it. Well, because I, just, I think, okay, again, we're talking about Disney trying to evolve a little bit. And, you know, the romantic element of this film exists just enough for for us to be to consider it totally unnecessary, right? We're still not at a point where the princess doesn't need a prince type, I guess, as far as Disney is concerned. But Mulan would not need much tweaking to eliminate this relationship altogether, right? I mean, there's not a whole lot there. Um, and, and honestly, I think they earn their moment through, you know, developing mutual respect and honor. There's not a lot of fairy dust there. There's not uh, slippers that need to be uh, tried on, uh, that sort of thing. So, I mean, there's a little bit, there's just enough of it to annoy you that it exists. <laughs> but but at least it gets you to a place where, you know, they're kind of on equal footing and, and can kind of appreciate each other that way. But. I'm not annoyed that it exists. I mean, I'm a little annoyed at the way it plays out. Like, I, I really like kind of the early feeling where, like, she's smitten with him because he's a handsome dude. And then she's impressed with him because he's an impressive dude. You know, he's capable and he's confident and he's a, he's a good leader and he seems to authentically care about his people. Towards the end, it goes into a weird space where it feels like her – all of the stories we, we ever complain about where a dude does stuff and, like, earns the woman at the end. This is like the inverse of that, where she basically does all of these great things. And what she gets at the end as a prize is the dude. And I guess you can say that that's fun in a way because it's it's subverting an old story. But I still find it kind of irritating to see people kind of awarded to each other. Does the matchmaker scene at the beginning make that love story better or more annoying? I'd say better. Yeah. Because she's choosing her own match. But I think it also kind of reinforces that that is still the ultimate goal for mm-hmm. her and her family is if she brings honor to them, but also she does this other thing that is what they really wanted for her from the beginning, which is make a match. But keep in mind, she does, there, there are other benefits that she gets there at the end too, that she does get an offer to be on some advisory capacity, which she turns down and so to go home. Yeah. Um, she does get the entire kingdom, you know, giving the respect. I mean, so there's more than him as a prize is a little bit, you know, she has some chance at political power that she, uh, I guess, turns down. That's an interesting element for Disney to have retained. I mean, the the original Chinese poem that started the Mulan myth, at least as far as they can tell, because it goes so far back and has been through so many different iterations that it's possible that there was an earlier one that was lost. But as far as they can tell, like the first one, first of all, she she's at war for 12 years and nobody ever figures out she's a woman. Mm-hmm. It's not until, you know, she's offered all of these honors and she's like, no, I, I've done my duty. I just want to go home. And she goes home and becomes a woman again. And her old companions show up to, to visit her and find her and are shocked because they had never figured it out. So on the one hand, that is from the original source material. On the other hand, it is something that Disney chose to specifically preserve when a lot of the original stuff they they didn't. So it's not like it isn't a specific Disney storytelling choice, but it is one that comes from, I guess, a slightly more honest place to the original myth than the rest of it. So this whole idea that the directors had specifically of creating a role model for their daughters, I mean, speaking of how your five-year-old took it, how do you guys feel about this movie as a, a role model movie for young children? I think it's fine. I mean, I think it is a very basic, like I said, girl power message. And, and it's like, don't let people tell you no and, and go ahead and do it. Even 
even though you're a mere girl. No, I mean, I, I, <laughs> there is sort of a mixed message where maybe you have to pretend to be a boy to get things done. But I don't know that that necessarily is what comes away strongest. But in the end, if you're a five-year-old watching this movie. Oh, sure. I mean, by the end of the movie, even by the beginning of the third act, she's running around being cool as a girl again. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I as a uh, other uh, resident dad, uh, I, I feel pretty good about Mulan as a hero. I, I have a bad back, too, uh, which is not to say not which is not to say that I, I want my girls to go to war in my place, but I appreciate the moxie. And uh, you know, how can you not like Mulan as a role model? She's courageous, resilient, clever, self sacrificing. Uh, she has she a, hates she, boys. <laughs> That's a really good point. That is true. She she has and she's got a you know she's got a rebellious streak, but also you know strong uh, principle. She's a, she's. She's all right. She is all about honoring her dad. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to get too far into Moana, but both of these movies are kind of about, you know, you've got to love and respect your dad, but don't listen to him because he's <laughs> he's conservative and fuddy-duddy. Yeah, that's inevitable. It's going to happen. I mean, I just... will do it for a good cause instead of like, you know, running off and following a, a jam band or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just, it is somebody who is not a parent. I find myself wondering because so many Disney movies are inevitably about breaking away. You know, they're four kids. They're the story of finding your independence, coming of age. Maybe this is even outside the scope of this discussion, but I, I guess I'm wondering what it's like as a parent to see an endless parade of stories about get over your parents and get, <laughs> get out of their lives and go be independent. I think they're packaging a story that the kids need to see and, and are going to, to live out in one form or another. And I think it's, you know, your kids are going to rebel against you. It may, like I said, I mean, I was joking before, but, but, it may as well be for the right reasons and the wrong reasons. I think it's a matter of, of following strong beliefs, even when you're uh, acting out against what you're being told. I mean, teaching independence is a part of parenting. Sure. Otherwise, you're pulling up tights and, and uh, <laughs> zipping up jumpers the rest of your life. You? <laughs> exactly right. No, I, I, uh, I, I look forward. Not to them leaving the nest exactly, but but uh, but you know the additional sleep the the uh, would be nice and some self reliance. Um, you know, you're excited in- to send them to review films in your stud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right, exactly, exactly. When I'm laid up, they can they can they can venture out to see uh, Office Christmas Party and review it. Um, so I think as a parent, one appreciates every stage of a child's life, including the one where they they push away a little bit and uh, go off on their own. Uh, not there yet. Uh, not remotely, uh, but uh, I'm sure I'll like it. Well, that's cool. Thank you for indulging my curiosity that is slightly off topic. I guess, looping back specifically to Mulan, I'm curious what you guys made of the animation. Like, there's there's a lot of stuff going on here where Disney was doing early experiments with CGI. There's some stuff that's, like, very artistic and elaborate and beautiful. There's some stuff that consciously brings in, like, Asian art influence. And then there's a whole bunch of, like, very traditional, like, Disney cute animals doing cute slapstick things. Did any of it really stand out? for you do you have any particular thoughts about the animation i mean i i like the the place setting i, I like the colors i thought were lovely and and uh the backgrounds were quite nice i mean the production design of this is is, is pretty beautiful for the most part I, I want to talk a little about the the cgi uh animation in this because it is on the early side but i i respect how it's used like that av- i'm assuming that avalanche sequence is a fair amount of yeah. cgi in it like you, you can tell uh it, it has that slightly uh, fuzzy look to it. But I think the way that that shot is actually composed and the way that the way that it uses CGI for effect 
is really good, um, even if the actual technology maybe doesn't live up to modern standards. The the bigger picture, I think, holds up, even if some of the details don't. Yeah, I, I found that the the animation I like quite a bit. I, I just I just miss the hand drawn style and how relaxed and kind of warm it feels in comparison to CGI. And, you know, and when it comes time to stage the big action sequences like the Avalanche, that was striking. What I found striking about the Avalanche 2 is how abstract it is. You're not really worried too much about the physics of the thing, you know, and you can kind of, people just seem to be moving back and forth in the snow all willy-nilly and it's fine. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I liked um, scenes where animation is used a little more expressively, uh, like the, the, the montage where uh, Li Shang uh, whips all the uh, men into shape pretty fast pretty fast transformation from uh, all it takes is one donny osmond song i know uh, and uh you know and i, I think it, if i if i recall correctly that montage ends with uh the soldiers doing their fighting exercises in unison against a blazing red backdrop i mean yeah. that's kind of neat that's a graphically yeah, pleasing that's a nice sequence yeah. Yeah. yeah it is we'll get to the songs in a second one of the things that there's there's a sequence in there like I I really enjoy the Mulan cutting her hair sequence which is mm-hmm. you know very very dramatic and uh, just shot in an interesting way and I like some of the big action sequences as well but for some reason the sequence that like stood out for me most watching this again is the one where Mushu fakes the document saying that they've all got to immediately head to the front the panda the, the <laughs> thing with the panda and the like the stuffed scarecrow that where the cricket functions as its face <laughs> yeah. is it's um, out of a Miyazaki movie yeah. I mean it's it's no, surreal cool. and playful and then that moment where it walks by him and goes straight up I knew yeah, I yeah, knew yeah. you were gonna uh, note that moment because yeah the funniest joke in the movie. it is yeah, yeah. It is, it is. I think it's where I laughed out loud the only time in this movie but also just like the timing the flow and the surreality of this huge thing just magically disappearing is incredibly Miyazaki and I will eat my hat if that was not an influence. I mean, I know for a fact that, that Barry Cook, after this film was over, he went to Japan and hung out with Miyazaki. Like, I know that Miyazaki was an influence on him. But that that particular sequence, there's just something about it that's so delightfully weird. And the design of the cricket face, I think, is really neat. Going back to the scene of Mulan cutting her hair and deciding to run, did the score of that part stick out to you? Oh, you guys yes. at all? <laughs> that was so weird. It was very, like, synthy, late like 90s. tangerine dream. Yeah, yeah. just kind of edging in there it's strange too because it's like so much is this classic jerry goldsmith orchestral score and he worked with synthesizers sometimes too so it's so i'm assuming he wrote that as well but it is it is kind of jarring yeah and and so much of the score does have sort of vaguely traditional chinese sounds mm-hmm. you know you, um for the most part the music like evokes the time and place the movie is trying to evoke and that is one of a couple bum notes uh, music-wise in this movie. Well, yeah, I mean, they're making heavily, heavy use of big drums and like the shamisen mm-hmm. kind of string music. I mean, the uh, Bring Honor to Us All song in particular is, yeah. is very much meant to evoke traditional Chinese music. The music in this movie just in general is all over the place. Yeah. I mean, I'll Make a Man Out of You is a big Broadway number. It's forceful. It's repetitive. It's simple. It's like a sing-along type of number. Honor to Us All is like that sort of strange. We're trying to put this in a an Asian, if not specifically Chinese, setting. Reflection is like a radio-ready self-discovery <laughs> song. I don't even know what's going on with that one. A Girl Worth Fighting For is like your basic like Disney minor humor song. 
song. Like all of these songs are just so musically different from each other, even though they were composed and written by the same people. It's just very strange to me. And who were those people, Tasha? Those people were uh, Matthew Wilder and David Zippel. Would you say of Milan that ain't nobody going to break her stride? Ain't nobody going to hold her down? Oh, no. <laughs> Would I? She's got to keep on moving. Yeah, Matthew Wilder, that was his big hit before uh, this. <laughs> I, I was not. I was not, in fact, aware of that. And little known fact, I sang Reflection in my American Idol audition, but uh, did not get, did not <laughs> can, make can the we, cut. Can, but, we, can we hear no, a few bars of those? not going to hear you. We heard a few bar of those bars of that before that we were true, recording. That is true, but uh, I'm, I'm just even talking about it turning red, so I don't think... Uh, I don't think that I was can... a song that made Christina Aguilera's career. Yeah. Because there was a key change there. The context the, is... The, the, the context Text of this film is no. not good. Though. Well, it's done by Leah Salonga, who is a well-known and established Broadway and in movie, but but mostly Broadway person. The integration of known names into this soundtrack is uh, clumsy, I'd, I'd say, to, to say the least. What with the Donny Osmond singing, I'll make a man out of you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and you definitely think, who is this person singing <laughs> Reflection, too? That that's, yeah. doesn't seem like it's coming from her at all. It's not like, me not when. Nothing but the hottest stars. We're going to get Osmond, we're going to get Wilder, <laughs> Firestein. Firestein. <laughs> okay, what is Harvey Firestein doing in this movie? I, I don't know. I, he's got a funny voice, Tasha. Yeah, what like more casting, do you want? Like casting. I can't imagine like them sitting down and thinking, okay, we need to cast the voices for these Chinese warriors. And it's like, stop. stop. <laughs> <laughs> Harvey Firestein. <laughs> hey, Ben. Oh, hi, guys. I didn't know you were here. I was just washing, so now I'm clean, and I'm going to go. Bye-bye. Come back here. I know we were jerks to you before, so let's start over. Hi, I'm Ling. <laughs> and I'm Chien Po. Hello, Chien Po. And I am Yao, king of the rock. And there's nothing you girls can do about it. Disney seems to be with this movie in keeping with the Florida uh, studio's propensity towards big, broad comedy, went and looked for people who could bring big, broad comedy voices in mm -hmm. and possibly not in ways that most specifically served either the setting or the story. I think you can just look at this film overall and say this is an example of Disney just kind of trying to figure things out. All of these intentions and forces and, and habits and things they want to change and don't want to change and voices they want to have and don't want to have. It all is just a confused sort of jumble on screen that sort of half works and doesn't. In yeah, way. I think ultimately it has kind of more value as an artifact of a certain time in, mm -hmm. in Disney's progression rather than like an all-time classic. Well, one of the things Disney was really having problems with uh, in terms of that progression was how it characterized its villains. There'd been a long habit of like Disney creating these villains who were a lot more like flavorful and, and exciting and interesting and dynamic than the main characters who were all kind of a little bland and samey. But there was also often a lot of complaints that like the villains are all either very fat or very skinny or very ethnic. Here we've got one of those villains who's he's certainly more ethnic than the the Chinese warriors, but he's also a beast 
I mean, he's got glowing yellow eyes and the whites of his eyes are black. He literally has claws and fangs. I mean, he's meant to be a Mongolian warrior, but he's kind of a, an animal. What did you guys think about that characterization, those animation choices? It's, it's very odd. He's, he's, he's more monster than man in some ways. But at the same time, I also think he's a pretty dull villain. I mean, mm, yeah. I, he's just kind of a one note. He uh, doesn't have a villain song. Yeah, there's No, that that's very too. true. He doesn't really have a, an interesting motivation other than mm-hmm. I'm going to, to conquer, you know, and, and then I'll conquer some more. Yeah. You know, I think the best villains, you can kind of see their point of view, at least just for a little bit, at least, you know, especially if they have a villain song. Right. Yeah. Like um, that's what a villain song does. Is it right. flashes out their, their motivations. And it, without it, he is just kind of his only motivation is destruction, mm-hmm. pretty much. Hmm. I'm trying to imagine what a what a song for that villain would look like. I mean, he wasn't conceived as a villain that could carry a song like, you know, he's not like a, a scar or Ursula or something. But I mean, know? that's that's sort of a circular. Like if he yeah. did have a song, it would presumably flesh out to the point where he would be a villain who could carry a song like if all of that characterization comes from the song hmm. i guess like the whole hun army could have a a song or or like (laughs) like actually i'm I'm kind of serious when i say that this movie probably could have done a little more to explain like who the huns were and what they Mm -hmm. were after (laughs) because they're they're really just a kind of amorphous evil force Mm -hmm. you know yeah agreed it, it leaves the film feeling weirdly unbalanced. And maybe that explains why. It, I mean, it feels to me that the whole third act of this movie is just kind of, it's post-climax. It all, it, the whole third act feels like denouement to me. And maybe it's because the real villain is the Hun army and the Hun army is gone at that point. Mm-hmm. I guess, does anybody have a better transition out than that in terms of like final thoughts? Mm-hmm. That was pretty good. Uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of third acts that Peter out. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I know a segue when I hear one. I'm not going to try to make a man out of that. Um, We'll be right back with some listener feedback on our last episode. Now it's time for feedback. We didn't have much opportunity to take feedback on Moonlight and In the Mood for Love because we recorded that episode back to back with our episode on Arrival and Contact. And it rapidly became clear that Arrival is the movie our listeners really want to talk about at length. Uh, Keith, you have a kid and you liked Arrival. You want to read us a letter about how people with kids relate to Arrival? Oh, sure thing. Andrew writes, I know it's purely anecdotal evidence, but I noticed that it seems like everyone who really loved Arrival has kids and found a lot of resonance in the emotional story beats. Whereas those of us who don't have children may have liked the movie a great deal, but were a little more focused on the scientific, linguistic, and political segments of the plot. Of course, that's not to say that being childless means you can't find meaning in a family-centric story or that having kids blinds you from recognizing other themes. I just find that with this movie in particular, parents are tending to zero in on the aspects having to deal with Louise's choices regarding Hannah, which means they're overlooking some of the minor story flaws that kept me from fully embracing the film. What do you think? Do you believe that being a parent has a noticeable effect on how you perceive this film? Guys? Mm, I know that definitely affected how I saw it. I mean, I also helps have a daughter named Hannah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it was definitely... Uh, I, I, was, I was in a mindset where I was thinking of, of my own relationship to my kid watching this movie. So if, if that's the charge, I, I will stand guilty. Yeah, I think it's a complicated 
question because I, 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 I don't know if having kids affected my reaction to arrival or not, or if I'd be less affected if I didn't didn't have them. I, I just I can't I, I don't know. It's something I can't measure. I just try to connect with them to the movie on whatever level it's trying to you know get me to connect to it and react to it as how I react. It's just that calculus is hard for me to to make. I mean, I think that's a really ironic thing because basically what this letter is asking us to do is exactly what Louise does, is to consider what life would be like with or without a child based on where we actually are. I mean, I'm trying to imagine how I would relate to this movie differently if I had children. I don't know what it would feel like to have children. I That's just, that's not a position I can put myself in. I can try to put myself in Louise's position making the choice of whether whether to have children or not. And just because I came down on a different side of that decision than she did doesn't mean I can't relate to her choice and find a certain like fantastic ineffability in her her willingness to sacrifice that part of herself that she knows is going to be so emotionally affected by all this. On the other hand, I think having made the decision to not, I'm maybe a little more sympathetic than some people might be to, for instance, the Jeremy Renner character who isn't given that choice, has that choice made for him, and has to go through all the pain without ever having had the option. I'm reminded uh, a little of our American Honey discussion and the uh, semi-joking comment I made about you guys not being teenage girls uh, and thus not being able to uh, connect to certain elements of that character. And like, again, that was a, a glib statement, but I do think there is something to the idea that your own experiences affect your emotional connection to certain narrative and character elements. And the presence or absence of that emotional element doesn't mean you can't recognize or appreciate those elements, but they do change them. Yeah. And then there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I mean, no. that's one of the functions of art is to kind of draw out some of these feelings for lives we don't have, and but also to draw out the feelings about the lives we do have. I mean, it's interesting both ways. Yeah, I mean, you can't deny it. You bring yourself into a movie. You don't bring mm-hmm. somebody else in. And so you process it how you process it. I wonder, though, if it actually really does have to be a case where a movie really specifically is keyed into experiences you've had or, or you know, I, mean, I think like, I remember like seeing High Fidelity and thinking, all right, this is a movie set in Chicago about kind of a record store guy. It's like, all right, I'm kind of on this movie's wavelength in a very specific way. But, you know, in other cases, you know, I don't have a whole lot in common with anything that happens in In the Mood for Love. And that film is one of those moving things I've ever seen. So it's just, it's strange yeah, to me. I, I don't know whether children, I think to, with the specific case of Arrival, I would say the, that particular theme, uh, which is that eternal sunshine theme of, you know, would you going to go through an experience knowing that it's going to be difficult knowing that it's not going to end well would you still do it that that question to me is uh, it's always compelling and, and always emotional and something i always can relate to i think maybe even more than i would sure I, children. I think that part of it's universal andrew i'm just going to suggest one thing try flipping the script on yourself and instead of thinking of it as people with kids are focused on the louise's emotional decision so they can't see the flaws in the movie think of it as those of us without kids are so focused on the flaws in the movie that we're not really under Understanding what the movie is trying to do emotionally about kids. I mean, you really can see that both ways, depending on your perspective. Here's another letter about Arrival's focus, um, not the focus on the family, but the focus on the heroine. Scott? Uh, yeah, here's a letter from Ben who says, 
First of all, I want to praise. Ta- oh, this is why you included in here. Of course. Uh, for, first of all, I wanted to praise Tasha's recommendation of Torchwood: Children of Earth as a companion to Arrival. After seeing a film where mysterious aliens represent the highest human ideals, those of communication and cooperation, it was interesting to see a similar plot unfold with creatures who embody our most selfish impulses. Regarding Arrival, though, I do have mixed feelings. The idea of cross-cultural communication saving the world may be sorely needed today, but that idea is undermined by a story of international scope that focuses on a single American scholar. While the heptapods have divided their language across multiple nations to foster cooperation among them all, the story itself emphasizes Louise's efforts at the expense of all others. When we do see her counterparts in different countries, such as China's General Shang, the message is simply that they are failing and that it is now even more important for Louise to succeed as the fate of the world rests entirely on her shoulders. Once the heptapods are revealed to be benevolent, the failure of the other countries to comprehend that benevolence becomes the story's principal threat and surrendering to Louise's superior judgment its only solution. Even when the future General Shang helps Louise by telling her how to persuade his past self, it is with an air of deference and awe for the singular individual who saw what he could not. His great contribution is to step aside for her. So, despite the value arrival places on communication and cooperation, it is ultimately a story where only a white person is worth hearing and where cooperation merely means doing what she says. All the nations on Earth may have gotten a piece of the heptapod's language, but when the book gets published, only the American's name deserves a spot on the cover. I I really got to push back on this one. I don't think that that's the story at all. I think we're seeing the story from Louise's perspective because the thing that she learns from the heptapods has an effect on her personally. But I think the movie emphasizes to a degree that surprised and pleased me quite a bit that all of the other scientific efforts are moving forward rapidly. The Chinese get to the idea uh, that the heptapods have a weapon before uh, the Americans do. Throughout the story, there are implications that other science groups dealing with the heptapods are moving faster than the Americans and have more information and they're sharing that information. I mean, I don't think it's it's that Louise-centric at all. Yeah, I, I can't remember the exact thing that was said, but in the Jeremy Renner uh, obnoxious voiceover thing, there there is a part where he points out something that another country figured mm-hmm. that out. I, I can't remember what it was, but it was like the Russians figured that out or something. Yeah, I, I, yeah exactly. I, I, there, it is explicitly in the, in the script. I mean, he is, he is right that and ultimately it's, it's definitely a Louise say it's a day movie but there's a lot of there's there's a lot of standing on the shoulders of giants to get her there and i think it's just it's 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 fascinating alone just in terms of i mean if you just don't if you don't if you think about it as something other than coming into a solution together it's just a fascinating window into international relations and how different people in different areas have different approaches and attitudes toward this potentially devastating alien force. And there's also the issue that seems to be being made in with all of the countries is that their governments want the the information withheld. The scientists want the information shared. I think it's pretty clearly communicated that that's going on in all of the countries we really hear about. Also, yeah, Louise's uh, name is the only one on the cover of her book. But like, how do you know that every other scientist that survived in every other country didn't publish their own book? And have their own revelations. Those are a bunch of different related stories. Um, Genevieve, you've got one letter that we did get about our previous podcast. Would you like to read that? Sure. Andre writes, after watching Moonlight and In the Mood for Love, I came away thinking that the theme that connected them was loneliness. In the Mood for Love revolves around two people who are saddened by the abandonment, for lack of a better word, by their respective spouses. That is what brings them together and keeps them together. I never felt love between Sue and Chow. Their conversations were about their spouses, or they were reenacting potential conversations with their spouses. They seemed like really, really good friends that needed shoulders to cry on, as opposed to romantic lovers. 
In Moonlight, Chiron lived a life with very little love. He had no father. His drug addict mother showed very little interest in him. He was picked on relentlessly. Juan and Teresa gave him some attention, but that was limited. The first person to show him physical love was Kevin, but that relationship took an awful, violent turn. Other than that scene on the beach, the first two-thirds of Moonlight have no romantic love in it. What struck me was how Chiron is so lonely throughout each of the three stages presented. Even at the end, the last shot with Kevin shows Chiron as a lonely guy who finally has a shoulder to lean on. I think that's an interesting way to uh, read In the Mood for Love, given the title and given what we know about how it was shot and that a sex scene does exist. And it was conceived of almost certainly about two lovers or would-be lovers. But based on what we see on screen, I think you can definitely read it as a relationship between really good good friends who happen to be of opposite genders and um, that of, that affects how people would perceive their friendship. I, I just think the longing there is yeah. there, though. You talk about loneliness, maybe, but but in both films, the longing is so intense. Maybe that's not love, but that's not not love either. That's not right. that's not uh, uh, buddies. It's something. There's a real desire uh, there in both films, in my opinion. I, I could hear Scott shaking his head. <laughs> well, he was making he was making faces the entire time he was talking. The, I didn't write it. I just read I know. it. Don't don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> Uh, I, I mean, it seems to me that you could certainly read those. those I, I think that I think that this letter is right. I think that the loneliness connects the films. I think that loneliness connects the characters and in the mood for love. I don't think it's that much of a stretch to say that they're longing to not be lonely. And they mm-hmm. see that in each other. I don't feel a whole lot of attachment for their spouses necessarily, but I think they're perhaps longing to not be the ones left behind. Mm-hmm. And to different degrees, they they find that in each other or they're just holding this mood that they wish that they weren't in. But I, I think they have opportunity to find it in each other that they don't take. And if they're what they're longing for is an end to this feeling, that might explain why. I think he's more right about Moonlight, too, where I think what happens next between Kevin and Chiron is an open question. It's not even that's, It may turn into a relationship. It may just be an unburdening that needed to happen, that, that scene. I like that it's left open and, and it's, not a, it's not a simple thing. And I think Andre is, is a very perceptive there. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think it would be a very different movie if it felt like there was a resolution at the end. One year later, wedding bells. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You just burned the movie for me. Just, just with that metal image. That's terrible. Wedding on the beach. Presided over by Harvey Firestein. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Finally, uh, in every podcast, we give you a phone number and we urge you to leave us a message. But very few of you take us up on that. Um, here's a call that we did get recently that we thought had a really interesting suggestion. Hi, my name is Greg. I live in Columbus, Ohio. My favorite thing about your show is that sometimes there's movies you guys discussed that came out before I was born that I would never have you know, considered looking into. But then I see you compared to a movie that I just saw in theater. And it makes me just wonder what else is out there that I've never considered watching. Would you guys consider at the end of your second episode of listing off a couple other movies that are similar to the two you just discussed that you think uh, your listeners might be interested in looking into? For instance, after you talk about Arrival, if you think 2001 or Close Encounters or maybe any other, maybe more obscure contact-related movies, might be something I would want to then go to my library or check on Netflix to see if they have available. Just a thought. I'm going to say that's a good idea and that we should do that. Yeah, I mean, uh, generally we go through a ton of 
options when we are deciding a pairing. Some pairings are just so obvious we, we, we have to do them. But there are there have been many occasions where we haven't been able to talk about an older movie because it is too obscure or it's unavailable or it, it's not. Or something else just pops up that we want to talk y- about a yeah. little more. Yeah. So the idea of maybe sharing that uh, thought process with you guys a little more um perhaps in a more formalized segment, maybe uh, something we can consider doing down the road. Yeah, I think that's a really cool yeah. idea. Among the movies we wanted to do at one point or another, uh, Whale Rider, uh, which is now hard to find. Yeah, we thought about Whale Riders. Of for, pairing to pair with Moana, Moana not yeah. to pair with Arrival. Yeah, when, when we did Pete's Dragon, I, I, was, I wanted to pair it with uh, The Wild Child, the Francois Truffaut movie, but um, we couldn't track it down. I mean, it was it's available on DVD out of print for like $75, so I think it's going to be a pretty limited audience <laughs> if you don't already have that film in your collection. But, but it's definitely the kind of thing that might be at a library, which uh, uh, you can always go down to the library and look. I think with um, with Arrival, we did talk about doing Close Encounters. But we'd already done Close Encounters. But we'd already done Close Encounters, special. which <laughs> made it a little bit of a problem. Um, but it, I mean, it is, it is a close match if you haven't already seen that one. And uh, for me, the biggest parallel there was the Torchwood Think Children of Earth, which we wouldn't have done um, because it's TV. And while we gave ourselves that out for Westworld, I don't think we want to return to that well too much. Um, but one thing that Arrival did keep reminding me of in various ways was District 9, which kind of takes the same sort of the aliens show up, what do they want mystery in it and takes it in a really radically different direction. And for this one, we made our process a little bit more public than we have ever before. Oh, uh, for the Moana pairing, yeah. yeah we, we, came, we came a couple percentage points close to having Lilo and Stitch be the pairing, <laughs> which, which I'm pretty sure we all, all would have had more fun watching than uh, I mean, Mulan. I went back and rewatched it just to rewatch it. Mm-hmm. I can tell you this. I, it's, I think it's a better movie. I think Mulan is a much better pairing. Yeah, okay, yeah I can see that. And that is often what our, it comes down to is what we can talk about for a couple hours in, mm-hmm. in relation to another film, not necessarily the best movie. Yeah. But uh, we'll definitely make a point to share some of our also-rans in the future. Yeah, for sure. I think that'd just be an interesting thing to do. As always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response in a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. Uh, currently, there are a lot more arrival letters and conversations going on over on Facebook, um, including people who uh, took me very specifically to task for things that I said and to some degree are right. But uh, yeah, there's there's a lot more conversation going on. Uh, come find us on Facebook. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In the second half, we'll bring in Moana, which is also a Disney musical about a young heroine who needs to defy her family and her culture in order to respect a larger sense of tradition. You'll also get to hear this. Uh, there, are other lines, there are other lines that, that kind of lodge themselves in the brain and won't let go. Look for that later this week. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Follow us at Facebook.com slash Next Picture Show. And follow us on Twitter at Next Picture Pod so you always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'd have more to say about the movies we love. But if you knew too much about us, we wouldn't be mysterious as the dark side of the moon. <laughs> Swift as a coursing river With all the force of a great typhoon With all the strength of a raging fire Mysterious as the dark side of the moon